ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Hello, I'm Colin Lehman, and I work at the British High Commission, where I'm Head of Trade Policy. But as a gay man, and to Mark Wellington Pride, I thought it'd be really interesting to talk about LGBTQ issues between the UK and New Zealand. So in today's episode, I spoke to New Zealand MP Louisa Wall and UK MP for Arundel and the South Downs Nick Herbert MP. We spoke about their life in the public eye and how LGBTQ rights have advanced in both our countries and then moved on to discuss the current and future challenges on equality across the full spectrum of LGBTQ issues. Louisa Wall, MP, thank you for joining us on Tea with the High Commission today. It's really great to have you here. Louisa Wall, you were banned from playing rugby at five on your local pitch. You were then a silver fern, a black fern, including as part of the World Cup winning team in 1998. Elected to Parliament and been here since 2011. Uh, you took the gay marriage bill through Parliament in 2013, then married your long-term partner in 2015. And your latest battle looks to be using your parliamentary platform to advance global LGBTQ rights. That's quite a journey you've been on and quite a future that you could have ahead. What's brought you to this next stage? Well, essentially, I think like all of us, we grow up with values and beliefs about the type of community and society we want to live in. And so for me, fundamental to my principles and values have been my parents, particularly, although not exclusively, my dad, who was the chair of our local primary school. Uh, He was the chair of our local marae, which are our cultural institutions within our Indigenous community. Uh, He later went on and became the Board of Trustees rep at my high school, and then he was on our tribal entity and so through, through my parents, I guess I've learnt um, service and I've learnt uh, to represent um, the needs and aspirations of community. And I guess coupled with that, um, I've always been incredibly competitive and grew up in an environment that enhanced um, what I believe was my natural kind of physical ability, so climbing trees, swimming in the in lakes and rivers. But I, I think, that I'm, yeah, I mean, I love sport, I love winning. Uh, I love the whole um, notion of preparing for success and then working with, within teams or collaborating with others to achieve, to set and then achieve goals. So, you know, when I think about um, politics, um, it is about service, it is about beliefs and values and it's about knowing where you want to go. And so I think through um, my sport, I've learnt that once I do have a goal, then really it's about preparing really well, so understanding the subject matter, um, the history of the issue in New Zealand. I mean, I think with marriage equality, it was just, you know, divine intervention. And you won't know this, but when my ball was pulled out of the ballot and I walked down the stairs and one of the first questions was, your bill's been um, pulled out of the ballot, and I said, yes, the rainbow gods have smiled down on us. And I actually meant it because at the same time, You know, there was a global discussion happening in the US and so Barack Obama had come out and made it quite a defining issue in his second re-election. 
campaign. Uh, there were discussions happening in the UK. There were discussions happening in France. And so for me, the context was this global discussion. And now, actually, we get to be part of it. New Zealand gets to join. So, um, yeah. So I think, like everything in life, it's about timing. But you have to be prepared Yes, to take it, just like a gap in rugby. You know, if you're not there, you're not there. But if you are, you can get through and score a try. And I think that served me really well in here. Uh, because to be honest, it's a pretty robust space. You know, you've got individuals competing against each other. But if you are here for a particular purpose, and if that purpose is about serving the communities that you identify with, so for me, it's my Māori community, uh, it's the LGBTI community, um, it's women, you know, and actually it's also for me, you know, marginalised and minority groups who aren't here. And so I've kind of take it, taken it upon myself to also speak for, for those people as well, whether you be homeless or whether you be somebody um, who's battling against the bureaucracy, you know, that essentially is the work that we do in our constituencies for our, uh, for our constituents, the people that actually provide me with a mandate to serve uh, the people of Manurewa. That's an incredibly broad view of the communities that you work for, uh, and I'm sure they're incredibly grateful that you are working for them in the way that you do. Just looking at the LGBTI community in New Zealand, um, and you've talked about all the work that you've done so far, what, what's the next battle? What's the next stage uh, for that community in, in terms of rights, in terms of their place in society? Wh- where do you see that going? So we have a saying in Māoridom called kafafai tonimato, and it's struggle without end, because when you feel you've arrived some bit, somewhere, actually, all it does is expose another struggle within the community. And I think from a political perspective, um, you know, we have all generally realised over the last say five years, that our trans and our intersex communities have been the least served. Um, Obviously, historically, we come from a context where uh, we inherited the laws from the the motherland, I'll call that, and it wasn't until, you know, um, 1986 that we went through our homosexual law, law reform process. And so prior to that, you know, it was really our gay men who were the most disadvantaged um, by the laws of the country. And so we've come to a place where um, it's no, we're no longer criminals. I don't think people fully appreciated that it was tough to be les- lesbian too. But, you know, we've shared those stories, we've talked about them. Um, I think for our trans and, and some of our non-binary today and, and those who are born intersex, they've kind of been missing from a lot of our history and our discussion. Uh, yes, we've, we've had, you know... Our, our transsexuals and, and some of our you know, beautiful um, men who cross-dress and perform, but they're gay men who have a particular genre and representation of the community, but people who fundamentally uh, have a, um, a difference between their uh, sex and their gender identity, I think are at the forefront of those issues. I know you're having debates in the UK about people... Uh, being able to self-identify it, not be medicalised, uh, not having to have proof, but just somebody's own self-declaration that there is a disconnect between their anatomy, their sex or their gender, and how and their gender identity. 
So we currently have a regime that allows people to change their sex on their birth certificate based on a formal process through the family court, through a medical model where they've had to prove that they've had gender reassignment surgery. Now we're moving into a human rights space, I believe, uh, where uh, actually as part of developing resilience, and particularly for our young people, we're saying, you know, we don't have to medicalise it because people aren't fundamentally broken. Yes, they need some medical intervention if they want full gender reassignment surgery. But actually, you know, your sex and gender and your gender identity being congruent, we now see it as a, uh, a human rights issue that the state should be engaged in and promoting through statutory declaration process as opposed to a whole the medical model. And I also think that's a recognition within the context of the medical model that we don't have the resources to provide everyone who wants gender reassignment surgery with the surgery. I mean, we have a waiting list in New Zealand of over, that has over 100 people on it. I know people received letters last year that said they can expect the operation in 30 years. So what's somebody supposed to do for 30 years if they don't have the means? Because the other thing, because people have been bullied, harassed, um, victimised throughout their schooling. They haven't got the best jobs. You know, we're talking about people who are poorer and have less ability to access the services they need. So, you know, I've really enjoyed um, looking at Ireland's pro progress, the report that they, that they released and the whole rationale, which fundamentally is about upholding the dignity of every human being uh, but from a societal and government perspective, it's wrapping that person with love and care and creating models of resiliency because we know that if we don't do that, people are going to self-harm and they're going to kill themselves. And so that is the reality of the situation in Ireland, in the UK, in the US, in New Zealand, and I actually think that is the most pressing issue at the moment. And you talked about people from those communities needing to be seen as not fundamentally broken and viewing it through a human rights lens a, a really incredible way to put it that's really brought it to life for me but what does that look like in terms of a policy intervention on the ground in the towns in the rural areas of New Zealand what does that actually look like in practice yeah and I, and I think the difference between a legislative response and then a cultural shift are different things but from a legislative perspective and we we are MPs and therefore legislators so that's my that's my role it has been about uh, working with the community working in the community I guess leveraging off we had a petition um, by a woman called Alison Hamlet that went through our governance and administration committee in the last um, parliament you know, those recommendations have been picked up by Minister Martin. Um, I think it is about having conversations about intersex people existing, you know, what gender identity is, the fact that we have uh, human beings who are born and they have a sex ascribed at birth that actually isn't how they see themselves. That's not their gender identity. And so it is about... You know, what are the consequences of us not accepting people to be who they are? Well, we know they're self-harm. We know that it ends up being, you know, drug and alcohol abuse and ultimately it's suicide attempts. Now, we've got a massive problem in our society about suicide. So if we want to get real about suicide, we've got to get real about supporting LGBT and particularly our young people to accept who they are, be proud of who they are 
and then to have a responsive family, community, society that enables them to be who they are in the safest way possible. And so that, for me, is what it's all about. Do we want people to die, or do we want people to live and live with dignity and also be uh, understood, accepted and loved for who they are? Because as a society, we want every single individual to fulfil their potential. And I know, through my experiences, that none of us can do that if we don't like ourselves, if we don't like the fact we're Indigenous, if we don't like the fact that we come from whatever communities we come from and the prejudices from someone coming from Waitahanui, for example, or the fact that, um, yeah, we have sexism in our society. So it's all those issues, and I frame them broadly as human rights, social justice issues, I'm incredibly passionate about. Um, and the reason that I do what I do is because I believe I have a responsibility to do it. And you've been able to explain that quite so clearly. Some of those issues really came together around some of the challenges on, on Auckland Pride this year, where you saw some real, some real challenges, some real issues from within the overall gay community uh, in New Zealand. And do you have a sense of what, what's your interpretation of what was actually happening there? And how do we move forward together? I, I kind of have uh, rationalised it for myself as a bit of a metamorphosis. Um, we have different aspects of the community that are at different... Uh, I'll call it evolutions in, in, in our quest to be normal human beings. And, you know, when marginalised people uh, are listened to, when minority groups finally have um, an audience that actually is responsive to how they see a particular context like Pride. Um, I think what we've seen is, yeah, grassroots activism. You know, people who in the past may have uh, not thought their voice was relevant or had a space. But the problem is we're, we're kind of living in different dimensions of our acceptance across society and that's kind of why you know look when I look at the disconnect between that cohort of gay men who from 1986 weren't criminals anymore to this cohort of young non-binary you know possibly intersex trans questioning who they are not based on other people's perceptions of their behaviour being immoral, immoral and not right and therefore illegal, but them fundamentally. I just think we haven't spoken and talked enough with one another. And I have a sense that, you know, some of the minority groups, the gender minority groups, just feel that some of us are so privileged now and we don't have any issues, and that they don't see them advocating for them, supporting them, as a family should. And I think it has really questioned the whole LGBTIQ plus community and the fact that we all come together because we feel the sense of social justice, that when one of us is kind of marginalised and their needs aren't met, that all of us will be outraged. And I think, yeah, that there has been a disconnect or... They haven't quite seen the outrage from particularly privileged white men. But can I also say from a societal perspective, that privileged white male conversation is happening in the Me Too movement as well, where women are speaking out and starting to say, look, sexism, harassment, violence happens to us. And, and I can, from a parliamentary um, perspective, talk about that because our cross-party women's group, in fact, did a survey and we've highlighted that we don't, we're not resilient 
from sexism, harassment and violence. And we're members of parliament. It happens to us. And so I think, you know, that, that's the world we live in, though, you know. And I also think we imported some of the issues with the police from other jurisdictions. I know that they've had these conversations for the last 10 years in the US and they're coming out the other end in Canada and the UK. And so you've got this very tech-savvy uh, younger group who are unfortunately being influenced by overseas, bringing all those ideals and values into our context when I don't think they fit. I actually think the police are doing a fantastic job uh, to diversify, to be inclusive. You know, they do have diversity officers. They have LGBTI members of their uh, team who are out and proud. They're not hiding who they are. And so, yeah, it's just, I think, globalisation, but from an information perspective. And all the different speakers, though, I do have to say they've spoken with passion and I do believe that they've spoken um, from a place where everyone's trying to do the best for the people that they're trying to speak for. And it's ended in having a march and not having a parade. And now people are saying we could have had a march and we could have had a parade. And maybe we should have just said to the police, your LGBT members can wear their uniforms because they're LGBT and they're in the police. But the rest of you as allies should wear T-shirts, you know. And it's the sophistication of those conversations which we lacked. Thank you for that just articulation of just bringing together an incredibly complex issue and, and drawing it out to, to what, what was actually going on in, in the broadest community. Maybe just one final quick question, which is you talked a bit about that privileged white man. And I look at myself by many definitions of that and I fit it and many of my friends. Um, and that community that you talked about who has real concerns and a grievance with that white gay male community what's the one thing that that white gay male community privileged etc can do to make this situation better I, for me personally i think it is showing that you care and how do you show you care you actually reach out and ask how can we better support you you know because we're talking about a lot of community groups that don't have a lot of resources and I think that was really the other part of the equation. They saw the mobilisation, particularly of the pink dollar, so of our corporates wanting to support this amazing parade. But actually the opportunity cost, I guess from their perspective, is why aren't those resources being directed into our communities? We're the ones working on the ground, preventing suicides, assisting young people, often who are rejected by their families. And it's like there was a disconnect like, what's it all for in the end if we're not creating a legacy for the next generation? So that's what I would say. Be really clear about how we're going to ensure that every uh, member of our rainbow community, their needs are being met, um, and we are distributing some of the resources we have in an equitable manner. Lewis Wall MP, thank you so much for taking your, this time today with us to talk about such a broad, timely and relevant range of issues. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Nick Herbert MP, welcome to Tea with the High Commission. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. Uh, perhaps you could start by telling us why you've come to New Zealand. Well, it's a huge pleasure to be here in this beautiful country and I don't need much incentive to want to visit, uh, but there are a number of policy issues that I was particularly interested to discuss here. As a former Minister of Policing and Criminal Justice, I wanted to talk about 
justice uh, issues, uh, and there is a lot going on, similarities between our country in terms of challenges, in terms of penal reform and crime, a lot to learn about from each other. There is a, uh, the emergence of a, an important and lively debate here about cannabis, and uh, we are interested in that in the UK, watching closely what's happening in other countries, including uh, Canada. Uh, so we'll be uh, watching the future referendum here in New Zealand very closely, so it was interesting to talk about that. And uh, two other hats that I wear, one is relating to tuberculosis, where I lead a global campaign on tuberculosis and work with the politicians in New Zealand on that, uh, as, long, uh, as well as many other uh, countries, uh, and LGBT rights. I chair the all-party parliamentary group on LGBT rights in the UK Parliament, and I am about to uh, lead a new global initiative to tie up uh, members of parliament around the world in support of LGBT rights, and there are some very prominent politicians in New Zealand who I want to talk to about that. Well, that's really great that you've come here to talk about such a wide range of issues. Just staying with global LGBT rights, uh, clearly lots of parliaments in the world have many uh, gay MPs in parliament and you're talking about using that platform and taking it global. And what is it that you're looking to achieve uh, through that, that coordination? I think it's incredibly important to focus on what's happening uh, around the world where we really have a tale of two worlds. You know, we have some countries that are making tremendous advances on LGBT rights, where equality is being achieved. And we've seen, for instance, uh, in New Zealand, uh, marriage equality uh, being achieved. The same thing uh, more recently uh, in Australia, the United States of America, and obviously in most parts of the United Kingdom, a campaign I had a great deal to, to do with. And that's all incredibly encouraging. We see some countries decriminalizing and recognizing equality. But on the other hand, we see other countries where LGBT rights are not just not advancing, they're actually going backwards, where we see repression of gay people, uh, where we actually see in uh, some countries violence towards gay people, where we still criminalize uh, gay uh, conduct and that is a really serious concern. And it's something that unites elected representatives uh, around the world, recognizing that there are issues to deal with at home to make so sure that equality is secured, cemented. There are often outstanding issues to deal with, such as uh, equality for trans people, where in most countries that's still a big issue, uh, including uh, in, the, in the UK. So the agenda is not uh, by any means complete. Uh, but there also are issues we need to deal with collectively overseas in reaction to things that are happening, where I think having a coordinated response uh, and making it clear that uh, we stand shoulder to shoulder as nations, as parliamentarians, to say things should not happen uh, is important. And I think, for instance, about recently uh, a terrible new wave of violence against uh, gay men in Chechnya, who are uh, being abused and even killed, where the Russian authorities uh, need to be held accountable for what is happening. And I think coordinating our response to that, uh, making certain that we have a, 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 a position uh, that uh, we can all take, uh, where we can make it clear to, to, to Russia. And of course, of course, governments do that, but also parliamentarians can do that. So that's why I think these parliamentary tie-ups are, are important, because we have common values, common objectives, and because 
LGBT rights are fundamentally human rights, and uh, I believe those should be universal. Thank you. Well, it sounds like a really great addition in that global fight for LGBT rights. Uh, just, just looking at the UK, there's some incredible figures there. You, you're here as a, an MP from the UK who is gay. The, the figures show that there are 45 MPs in the British Parliament who are gay. Now, that's 7%. That's an incredible uh, percentage and change from just a few years ago. Do you have any sense of what it is that's happened in the UK or happened in UK politics that's, that's led to that change? There has been a remarkable advance uh, in, in the UK. And actually, when I think about it, when I was uh, born uh, in 1963, because I'm 55 now, homosexual conduct was actually a crime. And there have been extraordinary advances now where uh, the latest reform is that there is now marriage equality. And to move from a position where something was a criminal offence and people lived in fear for revealing who they were to something which is fully accepted uh, legally and is increasingly accepted in our society is a remarkable achievement. And that came by partly as a result of societal attitudes changing, but also as a result of political leadership. And it was, I think, first shown by Tony Blair as uh, Labour Prime Minister. Uh, I'm in a different party, but I give full credit to what he achieved uh, in um, reversing laws, in promoting uh, equality. Uh, but importantly, then, the uh, agenda was then taken on by David Cameron as Conservative Prime Minister, leading a progressive Conservative government who uh, championed marriage equality. And so what we have built is a cross-party uh, alliance uh, where we don't have disagreement between the parties about these issues and where parliamentarians work very closely together to promote uh, e equality. Of course, there are some nuances and difference on particular issues, but mainly we have an agreed agenda. And I think actually the public like that. The public like the fact we stand together and we're not partisan uh, on these issues. And one of the things that's helped that is by the increasing number of uh, MPs who are lesbian uh, or gay or bi. Uh, we don't have any trans members of parliament. Uh, there are very few of those in legislatures around the world. I hope one day it will happen uh, in the UK Parliament, uh, because I think those issues are particularly difficult and sensitive at the moment, and we need uh, to give more time and uh, attention to, to, to trans people. And I think having an elected representative would be a big help and show that the public are willing to accept uh, trans people. But certainly, uh, not so long ago, there were no out gay members of parliament in either major party. A few members of parliament bravely came out once they were elected, but the big and important change is where members of parliament stood uh, being openly gay for election. That's what I did. I was the first member of parliament uh, to be elected as, uh, to the conservative benches as an uh, openly gay man. And uh, I think what happened then was that other people were encouraged to stand as members of parliament, realising that their sexuality wasn't going to be an issue. And I've never regarded it as uh, remotely a, an important or um, an issue that is, uh, matters to my constituents. My constituents uh, wanted to elect a Conservative member of parliament uh, who uh, had values that they shared, uh, an approach to political problems uh, that, they, that they shared. I think it was a matter of supreme indifference to them uh, about my uh, sexuality, and that in itself is, is uh, an advance. So I've never wanted to make it an issue, uh, but I think the fact of it is, is important. And I think we're rapidly moving to a point now where it's become of less and less interest to the, uh, the, the media and indeed uh, to the public 
uh, as the sexuality of a member of parliament. What they're interested in is what that person stands for. And I don't think it'll be long before there is uh, a gay prime minister uh, in, 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 in our country. We already have gay senior ministers and cabinet ministers. Uh, and again, that's uh, um, you know, an extraordinary advance over just a few years ago. It's a really incredible story there, taking us back to, to when you were elected in 2005 and how the situation has changed for so many of your colleagues. And in many ways, you, you broke that mould. I'm sure you were a role model for many people have come to talk to you about it. But what, what was it that gave you the confidence back then in, in a different society, even though only 15 years ago, the confidence or who was your role model? What, what played a role in you going... I'm going to stand and I'm going to be open. Well, I, I, I was open, so the decision was whether or not I would stand. And I have to say that I was encouraged by my party, the Conservative Party, that wanted me to do so uh, in spite of being gay and, and supported me in that. But also, I think I have to give credit to my local Conservative Party members in a very conservative uh, constituency who selected me in the full knowledge that I was gay, and it didn't matter to them. What mattered to them was the other things that I was saying about myself and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to represent the, the constituency. So I think that there was clearly a change going on in our society, but there was also very important support uh, in the party. I didn't want to talk about the issues. I only talked uh, to them about it because it was just important that they knew who I was. Of course, legally, they weren't allowed to ask me. I mean, that was in the rules of the selection. You're not allowed to ask someone about their se sexuality, but I wanted to tell them. But I, when I, once I was elected, I didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to talk about what I wanted to do as a member of parliament for my constituency, what the ambitions I had politically. Uh, I was even faintly irritated when I was asked about it. I didn't want to be defined uh, by this at all. But what I realised was that it, actually it was important that there were role models. And I realised that when young people would approach me about it and just say thank you for having this position. Well, there was no need to thank me, but I, th I suddenly realized that it was important to them. Uh, just as I think role models are important in all walks of life, uh, and I think it's important that there are openly gay people uh, in other professions, and there needs to be more, for instance, in sport, in business, in positions that people uh, aspire to, so that others can say, I can do that. There's not going to be an impediment to me. There's not going to be a ceiling. I'm not going to be discriminated against. And of course, this is important uh, for other issues as well, for, for gender equality uh, and so on. Role models are important. So that did encourage me to start talking about it, just because I realized that I couldn't just pretend that it wasn't an issue. I think being amongst the first, it is an issue. I think what I'm saying is that it's not an issue anymore. <laughs> you know, it is, uh, as I say, a matter of indifference, I think, to the to the public, uh, to the uh, to the media, because there are now a lot of uh, LGB MPs. Uh, we are at least properly representative of uh, the electorate uh, as a whole, and actually, there are other areas where we ought to be giving more attention now. Um, uh, in the BME populations, uh, women, where we still don't have, uh, we're not properly representative. We're underrepresented. We've made huge progress. Uh, amongst women. So actually there are other areas where I think we need to, where we need to do more. The gender is not complete uh, in the UK. Northern Ireland still doesn't have full equality uh, le legally because they are a devolved administration and they have not taken all those decisions. Uh, and even where our legislative agenda is complete in England, Scotland and Wales, we have this sort of full range of legal protections. There are still outstanding issues 
trans issues I mentioned. But there are also cultural issues that still need addressing. Acceptance uh, in sport, uh, having sufficient role models in sport, particularly soccer, uh, where we don't have enough openly gay players, any at all, I think, in the Premier League. And that's really important in terms of the signals that it sends to young people, schools, and ensuring that um, the issues of, of bullying of young children in, in schools uh, doesn't take place, uh, ensuring that there aren't ceilings on people uh, in business or any of the professions. There is still an agenda to complete, but it's more of a cultural agenda and a societal agenda than it is a legislative agenda. Nick, you've just taken us through the, a full range of, of so many issues there that, that still need to be addressed out in society. Uh, really being able to look at how far society has come, but being able to look at actually there, there's still stuff to do. Just maybe one last question on Parliament. What is it that needs to change in order to, uh, to work, work round some of those lower numbers or no numbers in uh, minority gay MPs, in trans MPs? What's actually happening there that you think is holding back uh, people are they going to be able to stand for election or get elected from those communities? Well, I'm not a believer in quotas, but I think, uh, or, or, or uh, positive discrimination, but I think if you're not going to do that, then I think you have to do everything possible that falls short of that to encourage and promote people into uh, a position where they will stand in the first place and then when they will be elected. I think there is a huge amount that political parties can do to encourage uh, people from different communities to stand, to encourage more women to stand. But there is also something probably about the culture of our politics we do need to address uh, as well. Uh, and only latterly now we're beginning to look at issues such as parliamentary hours. We've just passed uh, a new measure to allow proxy voting for uh, members of parliament when they've had a baby. Up until now, you know, we haven't allowed that. So there are various ways in which I think we could make the job more attractive uh, for, for people. But I think you have to encourage and um, work really hard to compensate for where there appear to have been uh, these historic imbalances. And we are still underrepresented. We've done a lot better, but we are still underrepresented in all parties on the BME population, still underrepresented uh, on women, in spite of having a, our second female pri prime minister. And without having uh, positive discrimination, which is kind of controversial, there, are, there is a lot more that we, I think, could do uh, to promote it. And that means parties really going out and encouraging people to stand and finding people to stand and saying, we really want to do this. It matters to us. It matters to us. We're not just going to stand back and say, oh, well, the best people will come forward. Actually, sometimes you have to really encourage people to, to, to come forward and make, it, make them realise that um, uh, they could do a great job, perhaps a better job than the people uh, who are there already. There won't be an impediment to them. Uh, they will be accepted. Uh, and other parliaments around the world have elected trans members of parliament. And I hope that we do in the UK at parliament because that is the one area that I think is of growing concern in the UK is discrimination towards trans people, very hostile media climate at the moment towards trans people, some difficult issues to grapple with. And I think we would benefit from having the insight of trans members of parliament who, who, who could give the real lead that is now needed in our country to show that trans people should be fully accepted in our society.
well that's great you've certainly got a busy job and a busy time here uh, so thanks for taking the time with us on tea with the high commission thank you thank you very much for having me if you enjoyed this podcast please leave a review as it helps others find us and remember you can subscribe to us by searching for tea with the high commission on itunes or spotify thank you kakiti anou